Hello and welcome to Working It Out, a podcast series from Advanced. In this episode, we are discussing diversity and inclusion and exploring the invisible workforce, those individuals who've been marginalised by the world of work due to chronic illness. Government figures have put the number of people in the UK of working age currently suffering with chronic or long-term illness at approximately 12.5 million. And with long COVID, this number is growing. So how can businesses tap into the vast wealth of knowledge, skills and experience of these individuals to help solve the ever-growing skills crisis? I'm delighted to be joined today by Steve Schutz, CEO of charity Astrid, an organisation helping people with long-term health issues and their carers find meaningful employment. Good morning. I'm very well, thanks, Louise. Yeah, very well. Good form. Okay, so we've got a lot of things to get through today. And I just thought I'd start, first of all, with what is Astrid? Well, uh, Astrid is a, a UK registered charity. And the reason why you find me in this seat as CEO is that it was founded by my brother. Uh, my brother was a career naval officer. Um, he'd always wanted to be in the Navy. He, he rose to the rank of commander. Uh, of the Navy. He was made an OBE by the Queen for services to the Navy. So he was a very accomplished naval officer um, who then went on to become a director of the CBI, a regional director for the CBI for the, for the Eastern area. Then 10 days after his 50th birthday, diagnosed with cancer. Um, it was already a stage four cancer at that point. It had, um, it had developed from his kidney into his liver, his lung, and eventually his brain. Um, and so at 50 years old, he, he faced an experience that an awful lot of other people um, have to experience in their lives, which is that you turn from being somebody who's enormously valuable, decorated naval officer, accomplished businessman, um, service to, to, to the nation, uh, recognised by the Queen, to somebody who's valueless. And, and he absolutely felt that. So he uh, set about um, founding the charity that is Astrid. Um, Astrid is available skills to train, refresh, innovate, improve and develop. Um, and that's what it stands for. Um, and our objective is to help connect those who've got long-term health conditions to opportunities, to job opportunities, because when you uh, have an illness like that to manage, um, one of the, the things that uh, you miss most is the social interaction and involvement that comes with work. And so many things strike me about what you said. First of all, he was very young in many ways and also obviously hugely successful in his career. And how important was him? To, you, you talk a little bit about social sociability of being at work, but how? What other things about work did he really miss? I, I think one of the things that that he found, uh, and, and many people find, is the immediate loss of sense of worth. Um, it's the value that comes from being part of a team. I mean, obviously, as a, a naval man, he was always part of a team. He he led a team as well as being part of one. Um, but you lose your your confidence very quickly. You you also can lose your sense of direction. Uh, one of the things about being diagnosed with an illness like cancer is that all the things that you've been trained to do up until this point, the, the education that you've achieved, the, the work experience you've got, is all pointing you in a direction, down the direction of, of hopefully your ambition. Suddenly that's all taken away from you um, and the ability to be able to still do what you had set out to do is removed. And so it's that, um, that sense of well-being that comes with being able to work that is completely lost um, and he absolutely felt that and, um, and, and recognised when we did the research that there are enormous number of other people who are in the same situation. And we'll come to those other people um, in a minute. So just from your point of view, what does diversity and inclusion in the workplace mean? Then? Well, I think, I think in terms of diversity, it's about breadth, isn't it? I mean, if you, um, if you take one of the, 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 the 
the well-publicized um, uh, uh, diversity arguments around gender or around race or around ours, which is health, um, you, you can't have a completely exclusive group of people who come from one of those communities. So it's about gender, yes, it's about race, it's about health, but it's also about returning from maternity. It's about ex-offenders. It's about the neurodiverse spectrum as well. It's about um, older people with more experience and, and age behind them. So it, diversity is absolutely about bringing all of those guys together and that into a, a maelstrom of experience that helps a business or an organization to develop. And, and inclusivity is about that, um, that wider breadth of experience, that talent, that personality, bringing that innovation to an organization so that the organization can um, uh, make better decisions, can um, uh, improve its innovation and creativity, can enhance its reputation as well. So all of that is part of it. And for the individual, it's about feeling valued, feeling part of the company mission, feeling motivated, feeling focused around an objective, which is something other than managing their own health. And we'll talk about it in the wider sense in a minute, but for your brother, he could still work, couldn't he? But perhaps not in the same way he had before. Explain. Exactly. Yeah. So, so when he was diagnosed, it was 2015. He was 50 that year. And um, his situation was that he had a, a wealth of experience. He'd, he'd re most recently in the services worked in the Ministry of Defence. So he had a network that was would have been the envy of the world. And as an engineer, he was a marine engineer, mechanical engineer. Um, he had an enormous amount of, of professional expertise that he could bring to any business. The problem was finding those businesses and those businesses finding him. It was that lack of connectivity that if you're somebody with an illness, you're trying to get a, um, a, an opportunity to, to restore that normality, to restore that sense of well-being, to, to contribute something. And, and not everybody wants to do it on a paid basis, uh, Louise. There, there are a number of people in that situation who are just as happy to work on a voluntary basis as they are on a paid basis because they, they just want to be able to contribute and get back to, 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 to that level of normality. Um, and what my brother found was um, that, that he couldn't get connected with those sorts of organizations. He couldn't get the message across that he was available. They didn't know where to find him. And so he ended up teaching GCSE maths to a group of 16 and 17 year olds. Um, and that was the only meaningful work that he could establish at that time. And it frustrated him because yeah, he just knew he had so much more to give. So he was in this position and then you set up this charity, didn't you, to help other people. So tell me about the other people, you know, because there'll be many people out there for lots of different reasons who may have had to leave a job and not being able to get back into the workplace. So explain to us who you, you know, who you're dealing with. Yeah, we are. We're dealing with with literally millions of people. We're a UK focused charity, but we're available to help all those who've got um, an energy limiting chronic illness. So that would include all those who've suffered uh, from a cancer, uh, those with MS, with ME, with heart disease, uh, with advanced glaucoma and, and advanced hearing loss, a whole range of illnesses. Um, together with those who are disabled and those who are on the neurodiverse spectrum, they all form part of the community that Astrid is looking to help. But uniquely, we also help those who are in a caring position as well. Often the case that those who are carers have also had their life ambition thwarted, um, have been forced to, to do something different. Maybe uh, you know it's, a, it's an unwanted uh, caring role that they've got, but they can no longer achieve the ambitions that they had, the, their training had set them up to, 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 to deliver. 
And so we help that, that group of individuals as well. It's that community that, that Astra is looking to support. And what it seems to me is that, um, and there's so many different strands to this, but these are people who you know, will hugely benefit from still being able to work on so many levels. So just give us some examples. So it's individuals who can restore normality to their world by really identifying what is their core set of skills. So um, a great example I, I love to use are those who, who might have been a primary school teacher, primary school teacher who's been afflicted with an illness. It could be a cancer, it could be ME, it could be a heart disease. Can't be a primary school teacher anymore, simply can't do the job that a primary school teacher requires of them. So what we encourage them to do is to think about, first of all, their transferable skills. So as a primary school teacher, you're somebody who's got a lifetime of experience of, of talking to people, of, of educating people clearly, of communicating with people, of solving problems, of, of managing relationships in a whole wide range uh, of, of, of situations where you can bring that experience to bear in a vast range of other jobs. So what we will do is we'll help individuals to, first of all, uh, understand what that new life direction needs to look like. What are the things that they're, they're interested in and most passionate about? And that's one of my, my favourite questions, Louise, is to, is to ask individuals about the area about which they're most passionate. Because if we can then take the transferable skills they've got, we can then ally that to the passions they have, then we're able to find a role that is able to connect those two together that gives us a great opportunity to be able to, to help people. So a couple of great examples, a, a young woman, a lady called Molly, um, that we were able to help at the beginning of this year. Molly was working in a, in a retail environment, pretty unhappy in that retail environment. She wasn't being particularly well supported. Um, the young lady has a, a disability, um, re really feels the cold with that illness. Um, and yet she was being uh, made to work in an environment that simply wasn't, wasn't um, uh, helpful for her. In fact, it was making her illness worse. So she came to Astrid, she uh, checked in in the first place to see that, that we would help her, even though she had a job, uh, to which the answer was yes, we were able to, to help her. And we helped her by conducting that, um, that, that support, that, uh, that help with her uh, transferable skills, with her new direction, the area in which she could, could, could really uh, deliver her, her, her capabilities in the best way. Uh, we helped her with the drafting of a new CV, that summarised those skills, and we helped her with her interview skills development as well. So that when she went forward for uh, interviews, and, and the interview that she uh, eventually got was with the Citizens Advice Bureau, she was able to present herself to them as somebody who could help other people in similar situations, disability and health issues, help them to overcome their problems, and she is now a Citizens Advice Bureau advisor. And how much difference has that made to her? Oh, oh, massive. And and you know, in terms of the uh, the, the confidence um, restoration, in terms of the the normality, she she had a job before, so the the finance wasn't an issue in her case. But in in terms of just her her own sense of well being through work and being part of a team, being able to work from home, being able to to train in a new area. And start a new career. This young lady's um, in, in her early 20s um, and start a new career. It, it was a, a fantastic opportunity for her. So we can really see the uh, benefits more, um, uh, particularly at this point, uh, from the employees. We'll come to employers a little bit later. Um, yeah. Tell us also, you talked about problems with energy limiting chronic illness. I mean, that must be affecting a lot of people. And also, what about COVID? How, how have you seen that impact on it? Yeah, we've got lots of experience of working with individuals with ME, particularly ME and chronic fatigue. And, and there is an enormous 
uh, overlap between those individuals and those that have um, have been diagnosed with long COVID. And the ONS are saying that there are over a million people, 1.1 million people, I think, who've been diagnosed with, with long COVID. Um, so what we do is uh, exactly as, as I've described, we help individuals in that situation to learn how to work as much as anything else. When you've got chronic fatigue, when you've got um, uh, and you've been diagnosed with ME, your life is, becomes one of a focus on pacing. You have to pace yourself to use the energy that you have got in the right way. So we have a, a number of candidates who we've helped in, into jobs. And I know of cases where individuals will be able to work one or two days a week and then spend the next five days recovering from the one or two days of work they've done in order to be able to work again next week. That's how important work can be to some individuals. Um, and once it's taken away, you, you absolutely miss it. So what we'll do is we will help individuals to learn how to work. And then we'll look to identify job opportunities that enable them to return to work in a flexible or remote or a part-time job sharing way, something that allows them to work from home. So it's really that underpinning of what Astrid does, identification of transferable skills, setting of a new direction, and then helping people to become connected to work. What long COVID has done and the pandemic has done is to bring a whole new community of candidates to us, um, many of whom are not actually able to work at this point, um, but they've, uh, they've missed out, they've, they've fallen out of the, the work uh, cycle um, and they want to get back again. So one of the things that has happened, which is actually a, a, something of a positive, I suppose, is the effect that the pandemic has had on companies. So even um, 2019 and early 2020, when I was making presentations to companies, you'd be amazed how many people would, would pat me on the head and say, look, Steve, this is fantastic. Great that your brother founded this charity. Great that the work you're doing. But you know what? We're probably five years too early in terms of our preparation or, or ability to be an organization that can take people working remotely, working from home, working flexibly in the way that you're describing. What the pandemic has done is to speed up that five-year cycle. So if those same businesses are still in business, what they've done is they've learned very quickly how to work with people on a remote basis, how to be able to, to support them and still manage those individuals. And so there's a great deal more awareness now within companies, but, but I also think within the, the workforce as well. We, we've got evidence from our own research, much more investigation is taking place when someone is looking for a job into the company that they're looking to work for, investigation to understand what their, their policies are around diversity and inclusion, around, around disability. Um, and those companies that have got the strongest programs, that have encouraged people to, to uh, into their organisation, they're the ones who are winning out in that war for talent. That's very interesting to hear that. Um, so there's two things I want to talk to you about. I suppose there's retention of people who might suddenly have, for example, a cancer diagnosis or long COVID. And there's also recruitment, isn't there? So let's talk about retention, first of all, from an employer's point of view, because we've heard, you know, from the employee's point of view, how important it is. Not to, And it's not just financially important, is it? Yeah. Um, so from an employer's point of view, you know, you've got this someone who perhaps they may be at any stage of their career, but they could be right at the top of the career ladder. How important is it to try and keep them on board, still working if you can? Well, I think you only have to look at the number of vacancies that the ONS talk about that are going unfilled. Um, they're over a million now. Now, just before the pandemic, it was 820,000. 
Uh, it dropped down during the pandemic to about half that number, but it's very quickly gone back again and now gone past the 820. So you've got 1.1 million jobs that are unfilled in, in, in the market. That's a huge pressure. It's a huge issue for, for corporates that are looking to bring people in. So if you, um, if you don't support an individual uh, in your organization that's got a, a health issue, that has developed some um, uh, a problem which means that they need to, um, they need to make uh, adjustments to the way that they work. If you're not uh, able to offer that or don't want to offer that, then you run the huge risk that you won't find anyone else to do the job. So far better that you work with the individual. In larger organizations, I think occupational health has become a, a much um, bigger provider of support. I mean, it used to mean um, something quite different from, from what it means now. I think nowadays you're helping to assess people's fitness for work. You're helping to understand what sorts of modifications might be needed or what sort of adjustments are needed. You're helping people to return to work through a development plan, but surely better to hold on to that individual who's quite senior on a part-time, flexible, remote basis, supporting them if need be with extra administrative staff than it is to lose them. So I think for smaller organizations particularly, um, the, and the nation is made up of, of, of small organizations, they do have to work harder to retain these people. They do have to work hard to support them. In larger organizations where there might be an occupational health service available, it's then about deploying that occupational health service so that it makes the, the environment much more friendly to the individual. So, you know, evolving the, the attitude, developing flexible roles, creating job shares, creating shift patterns that support those individuals as well. All of those things are, are vitally important. What strikes me um, is that these are potentially difficult conversations when you would be, as the employee, at a difficult point in your life as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think there's no substitute for well-trained management trained management who are aware of um, what it is to manage somebody with a, a health condition, aware of how to manage people who've got a need to work from home, can, can't leave the home. So managing those individuals remotely and from a distance. Yeah, the, the, the emphasis, particularly in larger organisations, is about making sure that your, your management structure, through to middle management in particular, have a great understanding, have a better understanding of of, of how to manage individuals in that situation. That was exactly the question I've written down. You know, um, there is no one size fits all, is there? Every, everybody is an individual. And my question was, how do you manage this situation? You sort yeah. of answered it. And, and it is, on, it is on, an, on an individualized basis, isn't it? And I, I think, um, well, well, we'll talk about, um, you, you mentioned retention, but then re recruitment is, is vitally important as well. Yeah, you know, let's and, talk about that. Yeah, and, and I think I think in, in terms of, of, of recruitment, there's, there's also a, a great opportunity for, for corporates to, um, to understand how to recruit people from this world more effectively. Um, we've done a, a bunch of research and there is absolutely a situation where if you're conducting a recruitment interview, um, the government um, uh, guidelines stipulate, um, and in fact, the Equality Act stipulates that you can't go into detail to discuss an individual's health condition. Well, our research tells us that about 40% of, of, of interviews do have exactly that type of conversation. So whether it's a guideline or not, it's being broken and, and organizations are doing what, in, what we think is the right thing to have that conversation. So Louise, if you were interviewing me for a job in your organization and I'm somebody with a disability or a chronic health condition, then I think it's really helpful for us to have that conversation not on the application form where it's black and white, 
but in this conversation where we are now in an interview situation where you and I are able to have a conversation because it benefits both sides in that equation. You are able to get a sense of who I am. You'll be able to listen to me. You'll be able to hear me describing my situation, describing how I deliver my best work, how I can um, work in your organization to deliver what you need from me and what sorts of adjustments I might need us to make in order for me to be able to deliver that. So you get that at first hand. You see a confident individual who's able to talk confidently about their situation. From your questions and the way you react to what I say, I get the sense as to whether you're an organization that recognizes the importance of treating me as that individual, making those adjustments, developing a plan with me in order to help me to help you. And I'll get a much warmer feeling and a much more confident feeling about you as an employer if we're able to have that conversation. If it's not held in the interview, it's got to be held at some point later. And at that point later, maybe both sides have made a very big investment in the relationship and that investment potentially is wasted. You talk about the government guidelines. I mean, if people are having those conversations, are they breaking government guidelines? In, in, a, in effect, they are. And, and I think that, that I would encourage them to, to feel able to do that. I mean, if, if you know, somebody can't be forced to talk about their situation, um, there is a, an increasing prevalence of a, um, uh, of, of, a, of a box that, on an application form that talks about individuals who are disabled. Are you an individual who's registered as disabled? Um, as an individual who is, you absolutely need to tick that box and then have that conversation. But what's the point of putting the box on there and having that, uh, teeing that up if you're not then going to explore it and discuss it in some way? And if, it, if you don't know what it actually means. Um, you've got some really good examples as well. Talk about recruitment because it strikes me there's this huge untapped um, pool, isn't there, of really highly skilled people. Yeah, we, we, we have. I mean, we, we know from the, the government statistics, the ONS statistics will say that there are there are around about 15 million people in the UK with chronic illness. So that's, um, yeah, that, that's a, a 20% of, of the overall population. But of that 15 million, uh, 12, just over 12 and a half million are of working age. So that's an ONS statistic that includes individuals with disability, 12 and a half million are working age with a chronic illness. And what we know from, from various um, uh, reports and stats conducted by charities is that just over half of them are not working. So you're talking about a pool there of over 6 million people. If you then add to that the, the number of individuals who've got a caring responsibility, and Carers UK will say that that number is around 8.8 .8 million, uh, a large quantity of them are not working, and then you've got those who are on the neurodiverse spectrum as well. So we're talking about candidates that run into the millions. Not all of them are able to work, not all of them want to work, and, and if you're stuck in a, in a, in a benefits um, cycle, which means that actually you're, you're uh, almost penalised for working in terms of your benefits, then that will potentially put you off as well. What we love to talk about is the opportunity to volunteer. You're an individual who's, um, who's managing a health condition. You've lost your confidence. You're looking for a new direction. You're energy limited. You're starting out again. Well, actually, volunteering down your new career path is a great way for you to start that process it then doesn't threaten your benefits if that's a, 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 an important factor for you, but it does build your confidence. Importantly, it builds your CV and it demonstrates your, your aptitude and your capability down a new direction. But you know, in terms of professional skills, um, we look at our database. Uh, we've got um, just about 1,400 candidates in the UK. 
and two thirds of them are at least degree educated. So there's a, an enormous number of people out there at the beginning of their career, in the middle of their career and later in their career, who've got this energy limiting chronic illness issue to deal with, this disability to deal with, who really want to be able to give something back to, um, to, to, to work. Um, I'm also interested in if there's, I mean, there'll be so many, again, it's individualism, there'll be so many different types of work that they could do. But is it, for example, with an energy limiting issue, is it projects, project work? Is that the type of thing that might work really well? Or just give us some examples? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good question. And, and I think that um, when you think about individuals who, who, when they wake up in the morning, don't necessarily know what sort of that day they're going to have. They, they know pretty quickly once they've woken up what day they're going to have. And if that day is a day which is, um, uh, the, the phrase that's often used is, is a flare-up day, it's a day where I'm simply not going to be able to, to concentrate, to work, to be able to give of my best. Um, if you've got flexibility as an employer, such that that individual is then able to drop a note and says, look, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do what I said I was going to do today or I wanted to do today, However, um, I'll get it done. Uh, and where we think that the best jobs are, are those jobs where the performance indicator is all about output rather than presenteeism. So if you are uh, working in a project, as you say, uh, the project needs to be delivered by, by Monday of next week. The fact that I can't do it between Thursday and Friday during the working day really shouldn't be an issue. If actually tonight, because I've spent today in bed, tonight I'm up, I'm awake, and rather than focusing on my illness, I'm going to get my work done. Um, if the focus of the job is around the delivery of the objective, then that's a much better type of job um, rather than one that requires me to be there physically at a certain time of the day. So as an employer, that's definitely worth thinking about. We know there's a massive skill shortage. We've already mentioned that a bit. And you've got a brilliant example, haven't you, about making use of carers time. Well, yeah, it, it's um, it, it's an idea that we've been developing with with a couple of organisations. But um, you know, if you're a carer, you can't leave the home, so you're absolutely uh, uh, tied to your your home situation, where you need to deliver your skills and experience in in that type of, uh, from that home location. Uh, we know that there are a shortage of individuals in customer service, particular call centre type jobs. So what if there was a, um, a, a new type of, 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 of schedule that an individual in that situation could adopt where they could work from home around their caring hours? Um, as an individual who's caring, you could have two hours in the morning, you could have two hours in the afternoon, and you could have two hours in the evening. You can do what is most of a full-time shift three times during the course of the day, working from home, working on a call center, working through email, um, and, 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 and technology to deliver your service. We just need flexibility in the way in which the organizations that take on workers in that situation contract their people. But contracting them to three shifts where they can work from home instead seems to be much better than running the risk that you're going to run out of people to sit in your call center. What I love about this conversation is what's really obvious is that with creative thinking, you can join up dots which seemed impossible for, before to join up. Yeah, I, I, I think so. You, you, can, you can retain people, you can um, attract more people. And one, one of the, the, the things I think that organisations need to do is to, is to think about what this means for their reputation as well, whether they're small, medium or large, that organisations that have got a willingness to, to innovate and create new ideas around these types of models of employment will be the sorts of organizations that will attract particularly millennial and generation Z individuals. You know, one of the, the benefits that we see, I'm, I'm running a charity here, 
Uh, I run it with a great deal of voluntary time, volunteers who come in and give their time to us to, to help us to, um, to, to buddy up with our candidates, to, to give them the, the confidence they need through, through those quasi-interviews, through that CV, CV building practice. Um, and individuals that, that do that and, and organisations that offer that type of volunteer programmes become much more attractive to other individuals to join. Um, and that word is spreading very quickly. And so as an organisation who is registering itself as disability confident or has got a strong DNI voice or has got some um, corporate social responsibility uh, investments that it's making, that reputation is going to extend itself very quickly and you're going to become an organisation that will be very attractive to, to new people to join. It's diversity of thought as well, isn't it, presumably? Yeah, and, and creativity and innovation are two of the areas which um, absolutely benefit from having this diverse and inclusive way of putting your team together, um, that you can enhance your reputation through the quality of your work as well, making better decisions, uh, having a much broader base from which to draw um, and delivering more creativity and innovation to your organisation. Right. So if an employer um, has been listening to this podcast, thank you very much if you are, by the way, anybody who's listening. Um, what are the key takeaways, do you think? I think the first is to, to look at your working practices, um, to look at how you can make yourself a great place to work for the sorts of individuals we're describing. So right the way through to your um, fr from the, the way in which you, you, you manage people when they're at work, but also into the hiring policy as well. Are you making it easy? Um, one of the things that's really um, asked for by our community is that that first interview uh, situation is conducted through this, so through through uh, audio, through through Zoom, through through um, video conferencing, because it allows me from my home location to get to know you, the interviewer, you, the organisation, to have that conversation when I'm delivering my best self, rather than making me travel for an hour and a half after I've gone through the struggle of getting up, getting something to eat, getting getting dressed, and then getting to your place of work, to an unfamiliar place to then make you sit in reception for half an hour before I go to a meeting room that I've never been to before to meet people I've never met. How You're making you, me nervous. <laughs> how can you ever expect somebody to give of themselves their best presentation? So think about your hiring policy, think about making it easier, um, and signing up to schemes that help to improve and build your reputation, like the Disability Confidence Scheme. I, th I think there are about 11,000 businesses in the UK that really um, have demonstrated a way forward. And I think there should be many more organisations. Um, and then I'd, I'd love organisations to work with charities like, of course, like Astrid, but, but other charities as well, who, who specialise in bringing diverse candidate pools to bear as well. They, they exist out there. They're, they're not hard to find, but uh, recruitment agencies and networks that have diverse candidates. And the final thing I do is get your staff involved, um, get your staff involved in volunteering, in um, uh, understanding what it is to be somebody with a chronic illness, with a disability, to, to help those individuals and to help make your organisation a better place for those individuals to work. Um, and all of that will deliver um, a, an, an uplift in morale an uplift in productivity as well for the organisation and certainly an uplift in reputation. That's what I wanted to sort of hone in on, really, because it's about, you know, a lot of businesses, you know, productivity, 
money, that will be very important, won't it? And this can make a difference, you think? Yeah, well, I think it can. And, and, and back to that point about retention, you know, the, there's that age old rule in business, isn't it? It costs five times more to to, to win a new customer than it does to 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 win to, to retain an existing customer. Uh, the same thing with staff. It's going to cost you an awful lot more if you have to replace your staff because you're not one of those environments that supports people or you're not prepared to support somebody who's worked with you for a long time and now suddenly develops an illness. It's going to take you a lot of effort to find somebody and then train them to the same standard. And I know all the time um, you are helping people get back to work. Just and just give us an example. I know that you know it is a really joyful moment for people when they can do that. Can you give us an example? I, I think one of my favourite examples um, ha- has to be young Rory. Um, so Rory is a, a man with cerebral palsy, uh, 29 years old. Uh, I first met him, uh, did an interview for him to have that conversation about, um, about what he'd done. Uh, he'd only ever had one job. It was three weeks in a charity shop. Uh, hated every minute of it. They sat him on the till. It was drafty. Just couldn't couldn't work with it. So here's Rory, um, who lives independently. He um, uh, is surrounded by technology. And so when I had that conversation about passion, um, it was a very straightforward answer from him. I'm passionate about technology. He said that's what I love. And so um, and you could see it. You could see it in his in his in his expression. So just happened to be having a conversation later that same week with a lady who is the uh, head of uh, technology at the London School of Economics. Um, and at London School of Economics, they have a, a, had at the time a, a real issue, as, as lots of businesses have, with cybersecurity. And cybersecurity for them meant individuals who could sit and monitor people's access to the technical platform that they were operating. So I told her about Rory, and um, uh, Laura is her name. Um, I told her about Rory and, and the skills that he'd got and the, the lack of experience he'd had in business, but the passion he had for technology. And so a month later, we've got Rory on a volunteering scheme and six months later employed by the London School of Economics as a cybersecurity analyst. And the joy that that brought to, to all of us and just telling the story now, it, it always it makes me feel quite emotional about the, the situation, but the joy it brought to that young man, to his family, to his friends, to his life, you know, to define that, that he was now um, a cybersecurity analyst working for the London School of Economics. How perfect is that? You know, what a wonderful, positive note on which to end this podcast. Um, it's been very, very interesting. It's taken me to lots of areas that I was not expecting, and I hope um, the audience appreciate that as well. Um, Steve Schatz, absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. And if people want to get in touch with you, uh, they can find Astrid and they can no doubt you can help them out as well, can you? I'd, I'd love to hear from, from uh, individuals who feel we can help them directly. I'd love to hear from organisations that would love to get involved with us, with, that can are looking for people and would like to, to, to look at the talent pool as well. But uh, yeah, Steve Schutz at Astrid, A-S-T-R-I-I-D.org. Um, but Louise, it's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Oh, you take care. Thank you very much. We'll take, bye-bye.